0: What's up, Taryn? It's Calais. I'm with my girlfriend, Noelle. We are currently out in New Zealand. We've been driving long, windy roads, looking at the beautiful scenery, whatever it may be, the snow-covered mountains or the windblown ocean. We really appreciate your podcast. Um, We've been talking about how articulate you are and good questions you ask while your knowledgeable hosts bring up cool ideas that otherwise we wouldn't think about. So it gets us talking about cool new things. Uh, we enjoy what we're doing more when we listen to the podcast. So thanks for providing it and keep it going, brother. I'll see you soon. Take care. Hey, Calais. great to hear from you, man. I've known Calais since he was a young lad and uh, now he's a world traveler, talented surfer, world traveler, living the good life. I uh, may actually be hitting you up, Kalei, in the months to come because I am in the very early stages of planning a trip to New Zealand. I want to do a bow hunting-surfing combo trip to New Zealand. So um, I'm going to hit you up. And if anyone here is listening from New Zealand and has some good intel, um, hit me up on Instagram. would love to connect with you. This episode of the podcast is with David Carr. David is the co-founder of Guayaquil Yerba Mate, and this is a fucking great conversation. Um, If you are a business person, if you have dreams of starting a business, this is the episode for you. All too often, business is associated with the raping and pillaging of Mother Earth, and Guayaquil is one of the beacons of light out there that um, really show that there is another way to do it, that you can incorporate people, profit, and planet all into your business model. And they are living it. I think that Guayaquil, Patagonia, and a couple others are some of the best examples of businesses being used for good that we have out there. Um, So I won't give away any of the punchlines, but they're doing um, just some really inspiring work And David even offers his email at the end, so if you want to reach out to him uh, and you have more questions, you can do it. I'm going to leave it there, but as always, thank you very much to everyone who donates this podcast on Patreon. You guys are the life force of this show, so even five bucks a month really does make a difference. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to make a donation. And last but not least, thank you very much to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. San Cruz Medicinals has been with this show from the very beginning through thick and thin, and they continue to support my work. So if you are even a little bit interested in trying out CBD products, go to scmedicinals.com and get some of theirs. Uh, they make potent products. They I use their um, tincture drops before I go to bed. They make me less sore. They help me go to sleep. Um, and you can get 10% off by... Typing in the code name Kyle 10, all caps, on scmedicinals.com. Support them, support the podcast. And with that, please welcome to the show, my friend, David Carr. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone.
1: I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen, and that being my job. Hey, you're hey, you're up, up. Up.
0: Standing at a right. desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists
1: don't see this part of Bali. Right. Smiles and thumbs up. Welcome to the Kyle Show. She's always pretty good.
0: Man, thank you for making this happen. This will be fun. So fun. Yeah. Fired up. I'm very fired up. Um, so, did you get back from Indo just recently? Yeah, just like a month ago. Month ago. Yeah. And where'd you go? To the Banyak Islands. Yeah. Nice boat trip. Boat trip. Sweet. How many days? 10. 10 days? 12 days. So fun. Yeah. Was what epic. Was was that uh, your first boat trip out there?
2: That was my second boat trip out there. Well, I did I did a boat trip in the Maldives several years before that, and then did a, another... I did a couple land camps in Indo, and so that was the second boat trip I did, but it was in Indo this time.
0: I've never been out to, uh, you say, the Banyak yeah. Islands? Yeah. I've done Mentawize before, and... That was a mind-blowing experience. My first one was when I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. and I really had no idea that waves could be that perfect. <laughs>
2: that was the same experience I had. Since <laughs> since I went the first time to the Mentawai's, like I guess it was three years ago, I've gone back every year. And then it was the first time I we went to the Maldives. Then it was the Mentawai's. Then it was Southern Timor, also just Southern Indo. And then coming back this year it was like I want to be on a boat. in northern Indo this time.
0: One of the craziest experiences for me surfing in Indo for the first time was riding a wave and being able to see the coral so clearly beneath me on the wave because the water magnifies it. So you can be in a barrel and it looks like you're about to head into a coral head. Yeah, And they're purple and pink and all have all these psychedelic colors to them. That was Mm -hmm. one of the trips that really opened my eyes to yeah, how good waves can be, and that there's uh, an, an endless search. It's, it was like it pulled on this thread that uh, just kept going for me. Yeah, and you and, the, and you can surf better. Yeah,
2: when you surf surfing perfect waves, you learn actually how waves really work. They're more mechanical.
0: Yeah. Well, they make you feel like a better surfer, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's a little bit like surfing a wave pool. You're like, okay, I blew that turn. Let's try again. Yeah, Great. Like you can actually learn how to, it's not like, you know, in California where you might get a couple shots a year at getting barreled. Yeah. You can, in a session or in a couple of days, learn how to do a few of those like real mechanical moves, like, you know, <clears throat> backside Dragging your thigh in the water, like that was a big one for me. I remember there was a point when I'm like, "Oh my god, I can actually slow myself down on this wave and get barreled." Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, man. Yeah. So now you're back here, uh, and and you're uh, heading back up to British Columbia soon. Yep, I'm on Monday, where there are far less
2: waves and. There's waves on the west coast of Vancouver Island, but I live in the islands okay. in, the, in the middle, kind of the Gulf Islands between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. So if you want to get good surf, you got to, it takes like an hour and a half to get to the west coast and you've probably heard of like Sombrio or Jordan River. There's yes. really actually quite world-class waves there or up in Tofino, which is more like the surf destination where it's not as good. It's kind of more beach break, but it's the easier place where everyone can get in the water.
0: Yeah. That's where they have that surf contest. Yeah. What brought you up to British Columbia?
2: I married a woman from British Columbia.
0: Mm. Yeah. The woman brought him brought exactly. up there. Yeah. And how long have you been there? 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. So you're digging it. It's a good spot. I love it.
2: Yeah, I live on an organic community farm. So we, we're about 30 people. It's our family farm. Four families. We raise kids, you know, and, and vegetables and produce. And we'd run retreats. We're a retreat center. So that's my, my wife's life and business. But I live there, which makes for a really nice domestic life. Did you set that up after starting Guayaquil? No, it was running before. I, so I started Guayaquil about 23 years ago. The Our families had the land for almost 40 years, but the retreat center really started about 20 years ago before I met my wife. Nice. It was already happening when I moved up there.
0: And she's up there and she handles the retreat, uh, a, a lot of the retreats. Yeah, her people. team, yeah. Nice. And yeah. what
2: kind of retreats? Meditation, yoga, dance, um, corporate retreats any kind of like gathering where we're like a boutique retreat center. So 35 people is kind of the sweet spot
0: and a number of other families and kids live on the, yeah, the area as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. Four I,
2: families and like 10 kids.
0: That's great, man. What a, a did it feel kind of like a support system to be able to, you have kids as well. Yeah. And to be able to have other families involved. Oh, I can't imagine really
2: raising kids another way now because that's the only way I've ever done it. And so for me who I, I travel quite frequently, For Guayaquil, and so when I leave, I know that my wife is supported not only by like her mother who lives there, but the other families and best friends and the best friends' kids, and they're all nestled in together. And it's I'm not there; it's not the same, but it's very supported.
0: Yeah, yeah. The isolation factor of modernity is, I think, one of the the worst parts. Um, I read a stat recently that. Most Americans only have one close friend, which is just man. Like on a on the scale of of just loneliness and mm-hmm. how you know we have more than ever right now as far as material possessions, but when it comes to psychological suffering, we're at an all time high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what you're talking about with um, families raising kids in a group setting, um, people feeling like they're a part of this embedded community can really be an antidote to a lot of what we're seeing now. Um, there's a, another a study that, that came out recently. My friend uh, Chris Ryan, who I'm doing the Motherfucker Awards with, um, he, he just wrote a book called Civilized to Death, mm-hmm. The Price of Progress. And uh, in it, he talks about how there was a, a global study done on um, on longevity and you know, what were the factors that produced really long life? Was it exercise? Was it diet? Was it mm-hmm. you know, supplements? But, you know, who? What is it, right? That people are going after. Turns out, the number one factor for living a long life is um, being embedded within a community that loves you. Wow. I feel that. I bet.
2: Yeah, I feel it so deeply every day. I feel so grateful for it. It's like my where I charge my batteries. Literally, I feel like I'm always just charging at home, and then I go out in the world, and I have the intensity of my my life and connections, but I'm always all in, and I can do it. I can kind of go 24-7 for about a week. Limited sleep, limited everything. Everything's sort of an, an option, and then I can come back, and I can sink back in. But it's like to love all the people who live on the land and... The land holds us and there's something that's bigger than any one of us and we take care of the land and the land takes care of us and we grow our food and the and the kids w- know more about the garden than i do and walk around and harvest the vegetables even all year long getting stuff from the greenhouses and then the events that we hold live concerts like we're always gathering but there's been a lot of there's there's it's just the consistency it's always there and there's not like there's things that don't come up that you have to work through but when you have that, the time and the legacy, like we've been living together for like 15, 20 years, like most of us. That's so cool.
0: Yeah. I sometimes think that a better argument for that kind of living, you know, a lot of people make the argument for environmentalism and for ecological restoration, you know, it's a good way to, um, offset that by having, uh, uh, you know, you're growing your own food. You're within this kind of community. I sometimes think a better argument was just um, alleviating psychological suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's it's like uh, similar to the argument that people make. You know, with meditation, they say, "Oh, if you meditate," there was a study done on long-term meditators, and they um, have better cognitive abilities. But like, even if it didn't, it's still a really good thing to do because it just makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. I think the for me, the most obvious thing
2: in my life, because I live in these incredible bubbles of Guayaquil and Stow Lake Farm where I live. And in fact, we put out a book last year on, on where we're living, mostly because we wanted to show people a model of how it works. And it's become really clear, like, I feel connected to myself, and I feel connected to place, and I feel connected to all the people I work with. But everything's bigger than just me. I'm part of a giant collaboration, whether it's my... My farm life, which is run by women, which is amazing, or my Guayaquil life, where it's everything's bigger than me. Hmm. I'm part of this giant collaboration, this dance, but of doing something that's bigger and meaningful, and I'm connected to that. And if for me, having my personal and my professional aligned is a sense of liberation because all these things are happening, systems are crumbling. People say there's 40 or 50 harvests left. You know, all these dramatic things that people are hearing and trying to, like, cope with daily. Like, well, I'm feeling like I'm doing my best to make a change and a difference. And so it's a sense of feeling liberated because I'm doing that. Whereas if I wasn't aligned personally and professionally and I went off to work and then I came home to a different reality or I was going to give back 1% later or 10% later, I'm going to... It's not like that. If you're living your personal and professional life together and they align and there's kind of no difference, but you have boundaries and you have balance, then you can be optimistic and you can see it through and do the best you can and hope for the best.
0: Yeah. It also makes you more powerful, less externality as you hold within your life. As you're saying, you know, there are a lot of, uh, people that go, uh, you know, destroy the world on the weekdays and then on the weekends they <laughs> yeah. try and you know, give back. And there is just a bit of compartmentalization. There's a lot of compartmentalization that happens um, in our world today. And um, it seems that Guayaki is a company that from the very beginning has tried to um, internalize as many... It, I, I guess the word would be just um, having the... The culture of the company, the products that you make, and just how it's all grown, be as cohesive as possible, without having a lot of these fractures in ethics and morality along the way. Yeah. Um, have you, when you started, when you co co-founded the company, um, was there any kind of set of principles that you wanted to move forward with that made it easier to grow in this way? Um, Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia talks about how much more difficult it is for companies once they're already big to then adopt a set of right. sustainability principles. Do you remember if there was any kind of like conversation you had or, or um, just set of principles that you adopted that have been your guiding light as you've grown? Yeah, well, very early on, we, we
2: understood we wanted to be a legacy model business, like a paradigm shifting regenerative business. And really, it started out of like brotherhood. When Alex first shared mate with me and we passed the gourd around, we're sharing the same vessel and we shared these dreams of how a product that people could purchase would drive the regeneration of the rainforest, would drive you know, healthy relationships with small farmers and indigenous people. And then no matter if they knew it or not when they bought the product, those things were happening anyway. And so your word actually was the word we use, internalized. We've been constantly trying to internalize as many costs as we can into the business model rather than externalizing them for the public to pay for. Of course, we felt like the rainforest is important. It's the lungs of the planet. But from from day one, we've just felt that sense of like connection and that Mate is such an incredible product and carries such a big message. It's a probably the healthiest stimulant on the planet. It's part of a half a trillion dollar...
0: Besides sex, right? part of, I'm talking about like actual trimethyl, xanthine, alkaloids, That's a good <laughs> stimulant too. And they work well
2: together and you can, but
0: well, you can argue actually that, that sex is, uh, destroying the planet more than anything, right? Just people keep making babies. I digress. Continue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: I think, I think everything done with the right intention is positive, you know, and I think for us, we've always thought because it was such a powerful product it could carry a powerful message Mm -hmm. and we wanted to embed as much in that message as possible and then over the years we've brought in more regenerative parallels to our business
0: Mm. okay knowing
2: that if you actually go and buy this whether you know it or not there's a lot more going on and that's generally the case I think with most of our our customers they don't even know everything we're doing but that's okay you know in time you lift up the hood the more you look into it the more you'll discover that it's positive
0: right yeah, still water runs deep kind of philosophy, right?
2: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, well, and it's it's the opposite of most stories that are told around most products. If you pick up, a, you know, some kind of plastic product, for example, that product also tells a story, but it's a story of uh, extraction. It's a story of pollution and health. And it's the story of wastefulness and trying to operate in a, A linear economy on a finite planet, right? Which is Mm -hmm. fundamentally, if you know, if you really look at it from that view, uh, not going to last forever. So, for people who don't know, like, what what are some of the more exciting um, aspects to your story that you're most proud of?
2: Well, certainly, you know, our vision is that yerba mate culture will power our market driven regeneration business model to create vibrant communities and regenerate ecosystems. So like from the very source up from South America, working with small farmers and indigenous people to grow this product that we pay a higher wage for. So in other words, they have a stable annual income. That's the point. They can kind of count on it year after year, just like we'd like to have one so you can plan. Well, now that they have that, they can start building out their communities and build out supplies. And so we're, we're that economic lever that will drive the regeneration of the rainforest, the reforestation. And then once it gets up here and it's brewed, now we're distributing our own product on many electric vehicles. We're like GM's largest uh, electric customer. So are are,
0: are your vans run electric? Not all of
2: our vehicles are electric, but we we have about 300 electric vehicles distributing our own product. And then the other paradigm that's really exciting is we've been hiring people out of you know, the system, like who have been formerly incarcerated. We call them the legion of the system affected, the Lotza. And we have over 100 drivers who've come from that system in the last two years that we've hired. And so we want to see a regenerative product that can be sustainably grown year after year in the forest, which is the yerba Mate, delivered by more and more electric vehicles over time as the technology evolves and bigger vans are available that are electric to use those and then hire more and more people from the Lotza to drive them. And those are just some really clear (laughs) you know, regenerative paradigms that are sort of baked into our growth model, and we like to take that model everywhere we go.
0: Fuck yeah. Right? Oh, man, and and, and fuck yeah to hiring incarcerated people because I think that, you know, we uh, talk a lot in the environmental movement, especially a lot of us white folk, uh, talk about giving second chances to plastic bags, but not nearly as many to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the way that we've you know, set up a lot of the laws in our countries, right? If you're a felon, you can no longer vote. Um, and there are supremely limited hiring options for you. Yeah. F- you know, for some stupid decision you made when you were 18 years old. Um, so how do you uh, hire these these folks um, who have come out of prison? Do you have a kind of a system or a, an opportunity sheet for them to actually sign Absolutely. up? How does that work?
2: That's a great question because it's actually that lo- hiring is led by a, a gentleman who's an incredible person who you can check out on YouTube. His name is Jim, James Anderson. He started the Anti-Recidivism Coalition in Los Angeles um, with another gentleman and actually left that organization he started to work with us to be our, our lead hire. So he is the one who's in touch with that system. most. He came out of the system. He broke out of it he understands what it's like to be in it and to get out of it. And I've heard his personal story and you're just like, wow, you are clearly a switched on amazing individual. And now you're empowered to go hire more of these people. And there's a process. Obviously we don't want to hire someone who is in for drunk driving if they're driving vehicles or some kind of sexual offense. But a lot of people are in prison for very unjust reasons. And to give these people like a a chance at a first job that's, fairly routine and positive you're the mate guy dropping off the product is like a huge positive process people are so stoked to see you and drop it off and so it i think it builds really positive pathways that's regenerative and we hope that they move on we hope they stay with us for a number of years and then they use that as a resume to take their next step and we'll bring more and more people out of it and we can do this everywhere in the world
0: hell yeah and the united states is so far behind a lot of other countries that really do try and keep the recidivism rate as low as possible. And they know that by doing that, to, to do that, you you know embed people who have committed crimes in new communities, teach them new skills so that they can learn to, uh, so they feel better about themselves and then wanna move forward. I think that that's. Um, we're really great at putting
2: people in jail and keeping them there. And if they get out, we're great at putting them back and we're great at making them work for zero dollars. In some states, to do like corporate labor, and then like for almost nothing in other states. It's slave labor, it pays for a lot of products that you show up and purchase in, you know, Walmart or whatever.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen a documentary called The 13th? It's no. really good. You should check it out on uh, HBO or Netflix. It's all about the 13th Amendment and the history of prison labor in our country. And in the 13th Amendment, it's the amendment is. Um, no person shall. Um, it's, it's something along the lines of no. No person shall uh, you know, be a slave. Slavery is li- illegal, comma, unless that person has been, has been processed and um, com- and found guilty of a crime. Yeah. I mean, it's a hu- it's a really huge industry. Um, most people don't know that a lot of the fires that were fought uh, this last year in California were fought by prisoners. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, even if you then serve as a prisoner fighting wildland. Uh, fires, you because you're a felon, you could never be a firefighter. Um, you know, everything from our license plates to even um, panels for missiles can are, are created by prisoners. And you know, going back to our conversation about uh, externalities, like talk about an, an industry that is built on all of the wrong incentives and all of the wrong um, and and you know externalizing that cost onto society, which are you know people that have not been um, actually revitalized. So good yeah. on you for that, man. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's, lot to take on, and it's not easy. We've never veered away from complex situations, but it feels deeply meaningful, and it feels like another way to be regenerative in our own communities, say, where we distribute our product mm. with the Yerba Mate Co., which is our distribution company, and be doing something on that level in, say, the United States and not just regenerating, say, rainforest or regenerating the culture with indigenous people. There's, thi- there's a lot of layers to regeneration, and it's just something that we're really excited about.
0: Why the Amazon?
2: Well, Yerba Mate is native, to the subtropical rainforest, which is just below the Amazon, where all the fingers come down, where Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil all cave in and create that seventh wonder of the world type of place called called uh, Iguazu Falls. That's the rainforest that Yerba Mate grows in. And about 95% of it's been cut down. And long ago when I first met Alex, it was shared with me that they determined... That it was one of the top five um, priority sites for conservation, biodiversity, and conservation in the world because of the amount of flora and fauna in that area, and so there's these little, you know, islands of rainforest left that that are incredibly biodiverse. And so, as luck would have it, or as fate would have it, in that forest, what yerba mate grew natively. So now we're able to use yerba mate as a vehicle to pay for the reforestation of those areas because we set up nurseries and then we plant the nurseries in the tree and then the forest comes back if you leave it alone. The birds start coming along, they eat fruit, they drop seeds, more trees are growing. And so if we lay off of Mother Nature, she does recover and regenerate as long as more people don't come in and cut it down and burn it. And and the main reason why... One of the main reasons that it's really important that we're doing is we, because we're working with the people there, the small farmers and the indigenous people, they're actually working the land. They're there, and they're, it's not just land that's been abandoned, and, and so that way it keeps the poachers away and the illegal loggers. So you need to have agricultural activity taking place.
0: Right. The Amazon has been in the news more than ever right now. Um, why is the forest being cut down? Why is 95% of it already vanished?
2: Well, in Southern Amazon, where we are down in the Atlantic forest, that was sort of the first wave of people coming in, kind of like when I was born in 71, in the seventies, kind of that's when it all started. When I was born in 1971, about three quarters or more, if you look at the maps of that rainforest was there. So in my lifetime, about 75% of this rainforest has been cut down, which is crazy. And that's where we are. Above us is the Amazon. And about 50% of it's left. And it's the biggest forest left. So where we're working, it already happened. And now people are like understanding, like, wow, we need it back. Our climate's changing. And even the area, because even locally, when the forest isn't there, it doesn't suck the water. And it doesn't rain as much. So there, there's a lot of regenerative activity taking place in the areas where we are. And they get it. And they want it. In the Amazon, the, it's shifted that. They're accepting, they're getting a lot of the pressure. So people are, you know, burning now because of, you know, their, the politics with Bolsonaro being in Brazil. And, you know, same thing, even in Paraguay they're burning because um, marijuana is illegal in Paraguay, but, it, you know, they, they're cutting down forests and they kind of turn a blind eye. They plant marijuana, they sell it to Argentina and Brazil. And so that's where legalization would be huge because then that would stop. It's just resources. You know, and and people are on the fringe, and when you have a lot of the the land, when it gets deforested, you see like the Cargills of the world. You see, there like it's it's such a trip, man. The first time I went there, and Stephen, even now today, you just don't feel like it could be the situation, but it is. It feels like it's the armpit of the world. You're driving through. To get to the Ashe Guaiki project in Paraguay, you drive for five or six hours through deforested land. You see little clumps of rainforest where you know they're, they're there because there's rocks and they just couldn't clear them out. And it's all genetically modified corn and soy. And in the middle of it, there's billboards, like huge billboards for... S321 blah 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 brought to you by cargo or this Monsanto one it's like like it's just <laughs> full on you're like oh my god this is kind of depressing but for hours and they're still selling everyone on this on this program and then you get to the you know the Guayakee project where there's still rainforest and you see the indigenous people and you're like wow you you kind of imagined it was all like this and we need to start going backwards now we need to start regenerating these areas and it's only going to happen because people vote with their dollar, right? As long as people are buying genetically modified crops, they're going to keep doing it.
0: Are they selling the genetically modified corn for human consumption or is that more for the animal feed? I think a lot of it's for exactly that, for animal feed, probably
2: to the United States and other countries like Brazil who are raising cattle.
0: Yeah. United States doesn't import cattle from Brazil, but China does. So... Um the I've been doing a lot of research about this because the um, one of our categories this year for the Motherfuck Awards is the Amazon rainforest, mm-hmm. and the three nominees are JBS, which is the largest cattle uh, pr- producer in the world. Um, JBS was also the the CEO of JBS uh, was arrested last year for bribing over eleven hundred Brazilian politicians. Uh, the second is Bolsonaro. Who has gutted the Brazilian version of the EPA and all of their funding? Um, And the third is actually an an American investment group called BlackRock Investment. Mm -hmm. Um, BlackRock Investment just increased their stake in JBS by $71 million, despite a lot of claims that they're a sustainable group. Um, And there's a, there's a, Oh, my gosh, was it? There's a uh, publication called The Intercept that uh, Glenn Greenwald runs. Um, and they do a lot of investigative reporting on the Amazon and a lot of what's happening there. But um, I don't know exactly about, I mean, you, you know more than I do about uh, the corn, but I know that in a lot of areas, they'll just cut down the ra- rainforest because it's feed for the cattle. At least that's the way that they do it in Hawaii. Like mm-hmm. in, in the corn all and the, the soy. yeah, it's all for um, animal consumption.
2: And we know that's not even really good for the animals. No man. On top of that, like, it just it makes them big and sick. And yeah. Then, and then they sell that, you know, for us to eat. And obviously, there's something terribly wrong with that whole system. But it's it's rampant. It's like they're not stopping until people stop buying products. And so obviously you kind of hope through all this that consumers will look deeper into the things they they buy and vote with their dollar and realize like if they're buying something that's like soy and it's genetically modified soy or they're buying like a vegetarian burger that's made with GMO soy or whatever it is, it's like, or they're buying meat products that are grown. Like it's all just where it's all coming from.
0: I like, man, one of the things I I respect about what you're doing is that for a very long time there was this, really since the Industrial Revolution, um, there was this one-to-one ratio of prosperity and pollution. And you can see it in graphs where the more we would take from the earth, the more we would prosper. And it would just continue to go up and up and up. And you have a lot of these extractive Mm -hmm. companies that have made billions and billions of dollars. Um, But now I think just over the last... You know, decade or a couple of decades, there are these companies like yourself, like Patagonia, that are kind of these shining stars of reversing that graph and showing that you can create prosperity um, without a lot of the pollution and without um, the rape of the planet, really, if, if we're going to use strong language here, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a very big idea um, to be able to Decouple those two um, th- th- those two results, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's what you know. A lot of the people who are still, re- you know, behind oil and gas believe that, like, no, to pr- to prosper, we need to extract. Which um, I think that more than anything, it kind of comes down to this really great kind of ph- philosophical question. Really, like, what what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world do you value? And we've had these points. Through history, where um, people have s- have shifted their gaze to live with more equanimity within mm-hmm. the world um, there's a one of my favorite stories is uh, around um, Earth Day uh, nineteen seventy which mm-hmm. was you know pe- a lot of people point to to April of nineteen seventy as this point when human consciousness shifted towards this idea that the planet was um precious and small and and mm-hmm. we should take care of it and uh it's a funny story i think you'd enjoy it um of how the earth day was created um so there was a guy named stuart brand who was in his 20s and he was sitting on top of a rooftop in san francisco and he dropped lsd and he was looking out over the pacific ocean and he could see that it was curved and this was in 1968, it was before we had ever seen a photo of the whole Earth before. Mm. And he had this experience, this, this insight on psychedelics that that was the basis for all of humanity's ills. And that if we could see ourselves from this new perspective, from this great vantage point, that we are a single species suspended in vast vacuum space, it would change some of our behaviors. So. He has this psychedelic trip. He goes to Berkeley the next day with his jumpsuit and top hat with a protest sign that says, why haven't they shown us a photo of the whole earth yet? And the the school kicks him off campus. The San Francisco Chronicle reports on it. And he has then this huge platform. He goes to Stanford and MIT and all these other schools. And it creates this whole movement that really? with <laughs> these pins that say, why haven't they shown us a photo of the whole earth yet? No way. Two years later the first Earth Day occurs. Um, right after that, Nixon creates the EPA, the Endangered Species Act, the um, Clean Water and Air Act, like a lot of these acts that now have saved countless species all due to that one LSD trip. It shows you one person can make a big difference. Sure can, and and I think especially when you believe it, you know? Um, and I, so, and I do think that there's, um, a lot of people don't really like to talk about it, but there is um, a very close connection between the psychedelic movement and the environmental movement. And I think that a lot of those insights are born from um, fungus and from, you know, a lot of, from ayahuasca down in, in the Amazonian rainforest where people are going down and they're having these kinds of insights and um, kind of redirecting behavior in a big way
2: yeah I mean for psychedelics to me seem like something that for me it's always been like like a filter crusher mm. or like breaking down dogmas because we were raised and we're systematically being programmed by either our parents or our social groups and then we become who we are and we have all these patterns whether they're neurochemical or <clears throat> physical we just we think certain ways and those are like our dogmas or like I said just the way our, our patterns and so I think people's use of psychedelics helps them like crush those filters and see things through fresh eyes and understand again the connections that we have either with each other or something greater than ourselves and I think when people have a connection to something greater than themselves like the cosmos or their soul is like connected to someone else's soul and that could just be as simple as falling in love with someone and you're like wow we're bigger now that it's the two of us or having a child. And like, you could have almost like a psychedelic experience and having a child is like, Oh my God, I've like created life. Dude, well, I'm
0: sure. Right. right? Like so seeing that, a little, you come out of a <laughs> vagina. Yeah. What? There's not much more psychedelic. And if you're than not that. doing that and you're using <laughs> yeah. psychedelics
2: to like, you know, increase your consciousness or break down these filters. I think a lot of the, the change that we've seen taking place in the, in the recent, decades is because of it. And I think that's why there's a big movement around it because there is so much media programming more than ever. I mean, there was a television that was black and white at one point, not too long ago. And now we are constantly fed to the point where we'll have AI coming in our ear or something. So there are, there is a need for us to have ways to connect to something that, to the whole, to the, to the greater cosmos. And there really aren't anything else that's gonna do that other than plants. We are all made of carbon, we are, we're all one, and we, we come from the plants, we can't live without them, and we can't really breathe, because there won't be any air without them, and so I think a lot of these epiphanies that people have come from that kind of experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, my buddy Chris, he has a another line in that book that I referenced earlier, Civilized to Death, where he said, when, when you're asked what the natural state of humans is, what is it? You know, is this our natural state in this society? Here we are in this, you know, skyscraper in downtown LA, looking at all these other big buildings. Is this the best we've ever been? Is this our natural state? He says, asking that question, is like asking what the natural state of H2O is. Mm -hmm. Is, What is that? Is it vapor? Is it big crashing waves? Is it still water? Um, But we don't we're, we're just accustomed to whatever this is. And I agree with you. I think that um, psychedelics or just those, those crazy experiences out in nature can pretty quickly rip us out of a lot of those uh, dogmas and those programs that, um, that we're in and we kind of don't even know that we're in. Yeah, or like a flow state, you know, if you're getting
2: barreled on a wave and you're having an almost an out of body experience where you're seeing yourself within the greater environment and you realize you are actually riding a wave of energy that you can't see but you're in it, that's no different than having, say, a psychedelic experience where you feel connected some to something greater than the whole. Again, it, it, I think it comes down to connection, right? And for for us, that was what really drew me to the maté was the fact that you're sharing something like a plant spirit. That awakens you and clears your mind, and you're having that experience with someone else. And you can take that to whatever level you want in your life. But unless we're feeling connected, we're disconnected.
0: It is cool. Like I, that—that that it's uh, your brand is kind of uh, predicated upon in some ways an antidote to loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, it's good. That's, it's the whole idea of like sitting around with your friends, sharing something like what a, we didn't make it up. I mean, a, it's
2: been shared that <laughs> way for hundreds right? of years. It just drawn. I was drawn to it because you know, I was that person. I, I first met Alex when I got back from Europe. I, the day I was going to business school and in my third year, the day that I learned in business class and finance class, there was no social or environmental costs in our gross domestic product. I walked out of class, went down to the foreign language department and said, where can I go? I'm leaving the state. I'm leaving this country. My world came crushing down. I was 22. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. There's no future here. Say
0: that again. So you were in a business school, you were in a class, and and what was the insight that you had?
2: Just that there was no, like the finance teacher was saying there's no, in our current gross domestic product, how we calculate how much our whole country makes versus other countries, and this is what's driving finances and et cetera. You know how it goes. There was, they don't have any social and environmental costs. There's nothing. It's counted in that. So if you're not counting it, then it doesn't matter, right. which we know. And then look where we are today. But this is, this is 25 years ago. So I leave. I go to Europe for a couple of years and just start learning languages. I basically just had to go recreate myself because I didn't know what to do anymore. I had, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley and then going to business school and be like, I can't participate in this. So I was going to either go to the Peace Corps. But I continued with my studies and I got back. And two years after doing that, after living in France and Germany and Spain and just learning about food and culture and community and connection, I get back and I meet Alexander Pryor, my my co-founding partner who introduced me to the mate. It was like my soul brother. He's passing me this gourd. I'm having this like physiological effect in my body where I'm breathing more than I can ever breathe. And my head's cleared. I'm like, I've never heard of it. I'm like, I'm from California. Like never heard of this stuff. And it had such profound effect drinking it. I was, I was the kid who grew up with, like, uh, humidifiers in my room because I had extreme hay fever and allergies, and then I had shots on my arms for 10 years. Then I took all the drugs, like the real drugs, like Sudafed and Benadryl, Eesh. like the pharmaceuticals, because that was the only thing that would, help, but I always felt tired and crappy. So I went cold turkey on that when I went to university, like kind of when I was... In my early twenties, I stopped all that and got into really. The only time I felt the my body like on and revving was when I got off like you know mountain biking or surfing, like few hours of really rigorous exercise. I felt amazing, and so that was my life. And then I met Alex, and we like shared a gourd, and like after fifteen minutes of drinking it, I felt that same feeling like I just done th- two hours of ashtanga yoga or something. And I was like, "What is this stuff?" And then he starts telling me these stories about this. Powerful rejuvenator from the rainforest. That's known as el oro verde de los indios, like the green gold of the the Indians, and like, I was you know, there's all these legends around it. Anyway, I was experiencing it myself, and then how this product came from the rainforest and how it could be used to restore rainforest, and it was like revered by the indigenous people. And so my, of course, I just started. I, I I never stopped thinking about it, and here we are today.
0: Did you did it help you with your allergies?
2: Every time I drank it it helped my hay fever. It didn't make it completely go away, but I experienced so much relief drinking it. And I was just like I was and I and I was told I was allergic to everything green. Like I did the prick test where they prick you 50 times in the back and that was what it showed. And here I am staring into this like green soup of leaves with a bombija stuck in the middle of the gourd and like I would get extreme relief from it. So that was like Another thing, me just losing faith in like the military industrial complex, the pharmaceutical drug system, like everything kept on crashing for me. And so, like I said, I just wanted to create something that I believed in going on something that actually worked. And now I'm like, then it, it, all those layers just go from there. Like, wait, I'm drinking this medicine from the forest that's helping me. Yet we're like killing the forest. We're raping the forest. But the forest has like the medicine we need, and there's like a lot of metaphors. Oh yeah. In all of that that we can go into, but it's
0: pretty obvious. Not only that, but then once you start a company like Guayaki all these cool people start to emerge. <laughs> right? so you like become this beacon for other rad people who have become disenchanted by the system. Right. Right. So then all of a sudden you're like, well, I have better friends too. How great. Yeah. Well, the people that are
2: brought into my life has been like my tribe and my life and forever grateful, but it, it's actually been the mate. The spirit of the mate is that. And that's why it has been, that's why it's known as a symbol of hospitality and friendship. You share it. You have this connection. You're drinking this this plant spirit, and everyone has more or less a similar experience. They describe it as different than coffee. Why is it different? It's just different. It's a different experience. It doesn't have the acids and the oil. It's not black. It's green, and so it's, it has more of a like a, a gentler. Expression in the body where you do get the awareness and the lift, but there's not, people say there's not as much of a come down. They don't necessarily get the shakes as much. It's more of an awakening. The people have all kinds of words, but essentially it's just 24 vitamins and minerals, 15 amino acids, and three different trimethyl alkaloids. Alkaloids again, right? And so, uniquely of all the, the plant alkaloids that I understand, is Of like the six caffeinated plants that make up like the half a trillion dollar stimulant industry, mate is the one that has all three. It has like the caffeine that you find in coffee. It's mostly that. It has the teophylline you find in tea. And then it also has the theobromine that you find in chocolate. So you have all three of these xanthines making this special xanthine cocktail with all these like vitamins and minerals and amino acids. And then your body just kind of lights up on it.
0: Fuck yeah. Right? You know how it is. <laughs>
2: I'm not making this up. It just is what it is.
0: I'm drinking one right now. I'm digging it. Um, have you ever thought about putting uh, mushrooms in mate? We uh, did. We made a shot um, like,
2: like lion's like, mane, chili. We did a reishi kind of mate shot. We ended up discontinuing it because not enough people bought it. But I think it was because people weren't ready for it yet. You know, we <sighs> were kind of putting it in gas stations, but the people are going to gas stations. were buying like just the five hour energy, which is more of like a kind of Chemical product, and they're not looking for a health product. They're looking for just something that's going to give them five hours of energy. And ours was like certified organic, reishi, and mate. And it was also like four bucks, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I think that you're right in that people just in the last five years have become more ready for these new kinds of compounds. I mean, really, since like you look at the number one podcast in the world's Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. He's got two million people listening to every single episode. And he has guys like Paul Stamets going on, right. talking about the benefits of mushrooms. Um, and I have a, a good friend of mine named Shane, Shane, Heath actually started a company as a result of this called Mudwater, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a chai mushroom blend where they just start blending all this stuff and they're killing it, man. And I think that, it it takes like it's like certain products take an informed consumer to want them, mm-hmm. you know. So there's like a certain threshold where like if you have a, a little bit of information about it, then you're gonna be like, "Sweet, this is way better."
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think for us, we've been trying to just mate so powerful on its own. We've been trying to make it essentially palatable mm. for people to drink it, you know, as a use occasion. Like instead of reaching for the other ten or fifteen billion dollars worth of chemical energy drinks, which are just caffeine and chemicals, essentially artificial stuff. It's like, here's something that is a a good substitute, you know, where you can believe in the products, every single ingredient certified organic, or it's been sourced responsibly. It's in a can, which is a problem. Like it's cans are not where we need them to be. We don't make the cans. And there's a, a lot of things, for example, in our business that need to be improved and we're aware of it. And that would be a, like a good example of something that where even a business like ours with all the things we're taking on. There's so many more things that we need to do, but because we have a regenerative mindset and paradigm, we're going to be the ones who are going to innovate in those levels. And we need to, mm-hmm. you just can't do it all at once. You can't take on everything else. You just wouldn't exist. So we have the things that we focus on, but there's so much more that we need to do as a company to make ourselves, you know, more regenerative and more sustainable, we would, if that was all we were doing, I wouldn't feel good about it. But of course we have the loose mate and people can make it at home. And that's like the most sustainable way and regenerative way to drink the product. And it's even produced in a biodegradable bag. So you can get it and take it home and the options there. Now we have cans that have, you know, like no sugar or low sugar in them for people who want the product with that. So we have all the options, but of course the cans with the most sugar sell the most.
0: Uh, so I used to surf for Cliff Bar, and they did these big summits. And one time, their founder uh, he came in. He he has this real well-known story of um, being propositioned to sell Cliff Bar, and he the way he describes it is, you know, it's it's the morning, it's a you know, on a weekday and I'm about to become a very, very rich man. And I have these contracts in front of me and he says that all of a sudden he gets this like flu, like headache and says he needs to take a walk around Around the the block. block. Right. He's got, it's a (laughs) Ted talk. Right. Uh, and then he comes back and he says, I can't do this. And he keeps cliff bar. Um, do you have any, have you had any of those kinds of experiences with Guayaquil? any, big friction points? Um, no,
2: um, we haven't because we've been so committed all along to being a legacy company and not wanting to sell. And it's funny you bring up Gary cause he's a friend and someone I really admire. And he's actually someone I would credit in fact, for some of our excess because he was one, he, he was an, inv- he was an investor in Guayaquil before he had a fund. We were one of his first personal investments. And I remember we were having it at the table and, and he was giving us some advice. And he basically, he's like, do this. And he writes yerba mate really big on the on the napkin. He's like, just, just call it what it is. Because we had a really big wreath in the middle at the time. And so he's like, just lead with the product. So what they did. And so that's all of our branding sort of evolved from that point. If you notice, it's like yerba mate is big in the can. And before that, it wasn't so obvious. And he was really like the angel that came in, not only with his money at that time, but also just with his advice and sometimes those people that come along the way that give you those nuggets become so important for things that you just, it was such an
0: obvious thing, but not,
2: not to me. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and it's like, uh, I think it was, um, uh, gosh, it was Pablo Picasso had, you know, the story of Pablo Picasso when he's this old man, he's in a restaurant and he's doodling on this napkin Mm -hmm. and he gets up to leave and the waitress says, excuse me, Picasso, uh, can I have this napkin that you've been tr- drawing on? He says, uh, "Absolutely." Um, he says something like, "A hundred thousand dollars." And the waitress is like, what, "What are you talking about? It took you three minutes to doodle on that." He goes, "No, it took me an entire lifetime to doodle on this." Yeah. <laughs> so you have people like Gary, right? That just give you these little pieces of profundity mm-hmm. that completely change the direction. But you know, it, it took them three minutes to give you advice.
2: And he stayed the course. You know, he, he stayed private. He had those moments in time and. And so it was It
0: was great to great to have that support. Um, do you, have you guys been committed from the beginning to always staying private, or do you have a, a Yeah, credential? we just,
2: early on, we were like, this is what we want to do for our whole life. And it would, I can't,
0: it would be a sad day if we ever
2: had to go public or sell it.
0: Why, for people who don't understand? Just
2: because we have, have, there's so many relationships and connections, and life is so beautiful and rich with Guayaquil, and it's a tool for us to make so much change, we can leverage. I mean, if you think about it, if we're partnering with farmers at source, and regenerating rainforests, and regenerating communities, and then we're distributing our own product, and we're you know, hiring people out of prison to drive the vehicles, and we're creating our own media, and we're doing our own marketing, and we're doing our own sales. We're doing everything from seed to shelf. We even opened up our first retail place. You know, where? So we're uh, actually where I live, on Salt Spring, oh, wait. Yeah, as a prototype. So I'm sort of developing that right now we're one year in one year anniversary on eleven eleven coming up but we're because we're so broad in all the things we're doing there's a lot there's a lot we can do within the umbrella of of Guayaquil. Why would you ever want to see that move on when it's been such a vehicle for change
0: and why couldn't you do that if you were a publicly traded company?
2: well publicly traded companies are live by the whims of the market oftentimes and even though you say that in other words I don't want to like live by someone else's emotions. You know, we know what we're doing, why we're doing it. And being private allows us to kind of control our own destiny and make the decisions we want to do. The reason you would go pro- public would be to like get a bunch of money. And I'm not saying we would never do it, but that doesn't seem like a very wise option for us at this point. We, we are, we have lots of people who are interested in financing us and believe in our brand and our vision and what we're trying to do as a legacy business. So it hasn't been the challenge. If that changed and we had to make a different decision, we could, it's not like we're fixed, but being private really allows us to stay committed to the value. I don't have the same confidence that if we were public, that the same decisions would be made.
0: Right. Well, and and you would have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, so even if you went down to the Amazon and drank a bowl of Ayahuasca and said, you guys, we need to go more sustainable, and the shareholders said, well, that's gonna cost us some money, so uh, you're out. Yeah. You know, you I'd it, be the first guy that'd you be the first guy yeah. to go out <laughs> <laughs> kicking and screaming. Yeah, like, yeah. No, no, I you know Mother I, Ayahuasca told me, they're like, get out of here.
2: If you make the decision you go public, then you just have to be prepared for whatever. And so there'd be no kicking and screaming. Mm. You have to surrender if you're doing that. And it's like we're we're not ready to let go of the dream of this being an icon for the regenerative movement.
0: Right. You, sir, are a skilled communicator. <laughs> uh <laughs> And I would imagine that you have worked on that both uh, personally as well as with the messaging of Guayaquil. Um, how? I, what's the question here? Um, it's you know I mean it's a it's a little bit like people just don't really think about that who aren't doing it. Mm. But um, I find that people who are in it like yourself like you, you clearly think about how to um, communicate a message. Have there been any um, has there been any you know, advice that was given to you, or principles that you've adopted, or just insights that you've had about good communication within the company? Or mm. I, I mean, it's a kind of, kind of spray painting the question at you with the um, the, the word of communication. I'm mm-hmm. gonna let you take it wherever you want.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's more like a I'm a product of my experience. You know, I've I've always been working with like a close group of people in running and building Guayaquil. It's never been two of us. Really quickly, it was five of us, and then it's always been teams. And I've built a number of teams over the years. And in teams, you have to have teamwork, and teams have to have good collaboration, and you have to be an active listener. And so there's things you develop over time. And I'm, I think I'm a far better communicator now than. I was, and the same thing, living in community. You know, you need to be, you need to live in your truth. You need to be able to say things that are uncomfortable. You need to be able to hear things that are uncomfortable. It's not just all good. It's like all good not talk about it, you know? So I think for me, I really focused on language quite a bit when, when I did leave university and I f- went and learned French, German, and Spanish. I was really <laughs> thinking about language and every I had to think for two years about every word I was saying, because I didn't know it. And I'd have to pull from some bank of like, okay, how do, now I'm translating from German, or no, I'm translating from Spanish. Translating my, my the words coming out in Spanish are translating from French, because it's easier to pull from French than from English. And so I've, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about language. I still write all the copy for our packaging, just because I, I like writing, and I, I write my, a lot of my own music. You know, I just, I enjoy language. I enjoy people. I enjoy sharing mate. I've really been into the connection and the human experience, and so I like, I think communication is just a part of, there's body communication, there's verbal communication, but that's all part of connection.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and it also helps just as uh, our natural, our environment shapes our reality, so too does language. If you Mm -hmm. don't have a word for something that you're feeling, it's really hard to express that and feel it completely. That's why comedians are so great right is that they're tacticians when it comes to language and then you're laughing involuntarily because you're like shit how did i miss that you <laughs> you got it you like nailed this moment right and um i think that uh yeah it's it's powerful stuff to focus on um did was there any um any uh, when you were learning new languages also not as a kid which is cool um mm-hmm. Were there any techniques that you implemented to to, to to get better at it? Well, when I first moved to France, I lived with a French
2: family and I didn't understand a word for months. And then it slowly started to work. And w- actually what I did, which is kind of funny, I I found a book called the Le Petit Prince. It's called the, the Little Prince. And then I I read it every night in bed. I'd read it while I was listening to the audio. So I'd be looking at the words and following all the words in the book thinking that that would help to see the words and hear them. And so I did it. So I did it almost every night for like five or six months with the Petit Prince. And I did the same thing with Dejana Prince in German. And then I did it with El Principito in Spanish. And it's because I knew the book. I got It's the tra- same book. <laughs> same book. And it was like a kid's book. So I could talk like a sixth grader or something or whatever level. Because, you know, I'm not fluent you know, I can't, I'm not, I've let go of German because when I was in Germany, man, everyone spoke such perfect German and it was a really hard language to learn. So I, I don't even claim to speak it. I, I understand it and stuff, but I've held on to Spanish because I use it professionally. And like a lot of my friends speak Spanish and I, I love the Spanish language, but it was, that was my, that was what I did. I just read the book.
0: What kind of music do you play? Uh, mostly like
2: rock and roll and jazz and funk, you know?
0: Yeah. uh, Music and throwing concerts has been a core part of your marketing. Mm -hmm. I saw you guys did something with Dirtwire. Those guys are radical.
2: Yeah. yeah, Dirtwire. You know, because we started out going to natural food stores and, and the very first festivals... And the first festival we went to was called the Trinity Tribal Stomp up in like Weaverville in Northern California. There weren't festivals. We, I was in my VW bus with my brother because he and I went north and Domingo went south. And we were just, it was, that, it was that 1996, seven and end up at a festival with like a few hundred people and someone's brewing up jun, funny enough. Like now it's just coming to the market. You see it. What is jun? It's like a, kind of like a kombucha, but it's made with honey okay. rather than sugar. And, you know, I was talking, we're serving mate, we're we're bouncing around doing capoeira because my brother and I used to play capoeira, dance together, I'm drinking mate and everyone's looking over, kind of like weirdos, like who are these, (laughs) we're clearly not hippies, (laughs) but we're kind of at a hippie festival (laughs) and uh, it it was kind of a new experience for me too, like I didn't grow up in that environment, all my parents aren't hippies, I grew up in Saratoga and, but they all were into it. They're and they're coming over and they're telling us all these things about this product, like chakras and third <laughs> yeah. eyes and heart opening. You're like, whoa, this is cool. Like, p- people literally walked there for miles. Like, it was like, I this doesn't even exist anymore, right? And then it was like all the health and harmony days of Northern California and reggae and the river. And those are that's where we existed because all we had was loose mate here, packing gourds, and people were like into drinking mate because they're often really high at these events and mate brought them clarity of mind. So we are like the, the truth serum that kind of came <laughs> yeah. in. People are like, I need mate, man, I'm so high." You're like, here, have some mate. They just keep on drinking and they'd always come back and they knew they could rely on us to help them to get clear, like get clear, you know. It was the,
0: you guys are well, like the Zendo at Burning Man. You know, the Zendo, so if people yeah. are having a, a trip that's a little too intense for them, they go to the Zendo and it's yeah. this really cool uh, area where they We have, camp next to them, yeah. That's so cool. You yeah, the it's like an who, rescue. Yeah help, yeah, help people through their trips. Got to have some mate. There yeah, we time. served
2: 60 kegs of nitro mate at Burning Man for the last number of years. Wow. We brew it up and have it on tap in that camp so people can, you know, they can get showered off at the foam dome or they could drink nitro mate or they f- if people are having a
0: hard time, you send them over there to uh, Zendo. There's... Uh You'll, you'll appreciate this so in the in the 60s um, there were a lot of people that were going into hospitals for having bad psychedelic trips they're yeah. difficult and um, there was a guy gosh who was don't it may have been um, I think I believe it was Stan Groff uh, mm. like one of one of the early psychedelic explorers. I could be getting the the exact name wrong, but it's more Mm -hmm. the the lesson that's, that's kind of funny about this. So he would work in these hospitals when people would be having these bad psychedelic trips, and he found that the most effective way to get them through it was to go to their bed and say, excuse me, um... I know that you're having a hard time, but there's someone next to you, you know, down the hall that's actually have in, in a real serious problem right now. So if, if you are able to mellow out at all, that would be really helpful. Hmm. And by them reorienting towards like, oh, my gosh, there's someone who's in more serious trouble than yeah. I am. All of a sudden they like get back in the driver's seat and like, OK, that's fine. I'm going to be able to make <laughs> it through this. <laughs> we like As soon as you get them out of the victim mindset, they're like, oh, it's OK. From victim to compassion, right? Exactly. Um, How man? What a wild ride! Um, How who who do you lean on now for honest feedback? Like it's it's become successful, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you got a lot of people asking you for a lot of things, and uh, a lot of people telling you that you're the man. And it could I would imagine maybe be difficult to navigate or maybe it's not because you have such a core group of group of people. Like, uh, do you have any techniques for checking back in to mm-hmm. stay humble?
2: I I feel more humble than ever. Actually. I feel like I've been humbled so many times by my process. with Kwayaki. It has, you know, I, I thought it w- we would have experienced a lot more growth sooner on. I thought it would, a lot of things would have been easier, but in truth be told, the longer it's taken, the better it's actually been a, a great journey because you learn more Mm. and we've never had like J type growth. It's always been steady growth. So it's been slow and steady and just a lot of, you know, you like, if you really truly respect and love the people around you and you really, you want to see people thrive and come into, especially in in building teams, you want to see people in the right seat in the bus doing the right thing. And I have a, I mean, I have a lot of people who are really honest with me all the time and it's great. I, you know, I, for me, I'm always, I guess more than ever, focused on being grateful for everything I have. I really do feel grateful more and more every day because it's not about any one thing. I like have my health and I have so many blessings that I live with and so many things come my way and things have become quite effortless in so many ways. I've never felt like I, have. I haven't worked a day since I started Guayaquil, even though there were many 18-hour days. Energy, I've always been able to access energy. and and because of the passion I have for what we're doing, so I feel I think it's the grat the practice of gratitude, probably more than anything. And I know that i I kind of the older I get, the feel the more I feel like I don't know anything. And it's like these things have happened. I guess more, I guess as I've, the longer it's gone on, I think the less I actually hit my own head against the wall and create problems for myself. So I'm better at like not creating problems for myself. And so it also feels
0: easier that way too. Are you naturally hard on yourself?
2: No, I'm not hard on myself, but I'm probably, I'm a, probably naturally a risk taker or spontaneous and will just try things and do things. And, and then they, you know, I create work. you know, for myself. And then I've stopped and like more. And I guess the words that I find myself using for myself and for others is more like allowing, like allow things to happen rather than try to push them and force them to happen. So I'm more in a phase with Guayaki of like allowing the things that I feel are aligned and that I resonate with. And then having a lot more inquiry and questions around the things that, that I don't feel aligned with that I resonate with.
0: Hmm. What kind of questions?
2: Like if I don't feel like something's the right path for something that we're doing, I would ask more questions around it. Like, and, like let's talk through this some more because it doesn't feel right, or it feels uncertain, or is this really what we should be doing? Do you have an example? Not anything specific, right. but there's just always stuff you right. know that comes up. Not on the, on the big stuff, but it's like we're so all in on what we're doing, but you there's always a, a, so many ways that you can go about. Say for myself, I, you know I run the brand. Is there? There's so many different ways we could like market ourselves, and we've never done anything traditional. And so, I've always relied on like the baseline of connecting. Are are the activities where we're doing allowing us to connect deeper with people, and are we sharing our product? And so, things that deviate from that, I do feel like a little bit uneasy. I'm not traditional. I've never done that. We've never had a, a big. Budget. Where we've done anything around, like traditional advertising, radio, mag, nothing. And so that's not really my comfort zone. So if that was ever to be presented, I have a lot of questions and big agencies. I don't know any of that. Right. We've just shared mate. And
0: people are like, this is the way to go. The market's saying it.
2: Yeah, and so we're, we're more rely on our fans to share the vibe and to share our, our product with the tribe. And we're really trying to empower people to share the product. And so that would be an example of if it's connecting and serving, like the cebador, we consider ourselves cebadores. If we're connecting and serving, I'm there, I'm in. And that feels good.
0: Yeah, you mentioned gratitude, and I think that that's something that people can skip over pretty quickly. Because they're like, oh yeah, that sounds like some cool hippie bullshit. But <laughs> No way. Dude, the <laughs> profundity of taking 10 minutes and thinking about... um not, I've found that, so I'll just speak personally. I use an app um, called Waking Up with Sam Harris. It's a meditation app. Mm-hmm. And he has this meditation where you think about someone, um, it could be such a neutral person, someone who works down at the local bakery or you know, a person you see it could be a close friend, could be a family member, and you actually picture them getting everything that they want in life. And you picture them radiantly happy Mm -hmm. and you realize that you actually want that person to be happy Mm -hmm. and you let that feeling pass through you. Yeah. And then you take that intention and you switch it around to yourself and you realize that the act of meditating, the act of being grateful is in and of itself an act of wanting yourself to be happy. And Dude, taking 10 minutes doing this for me has been one of the most impactful decisions of my life. It like really does make the, the, the difference between me kind of hating myself and me loving myself. Hmm. Like that big, which then, as you say, like we, we've talked about this in the past, but like those little decisions that can be these Archimedes levers for massive changes to happen... Um, I feel the same way.
2: You know, I've, I, this has been pretty recent for me in the last two or three years. I, I don't always have time to do a practice, but I I usually have time just to do my asanas. I do all my own practice. I've, I've practiced yoga off and on for 30 years, but I've on like days today, I, I did about 20 minutes of some positions that I have my, my little routine that I do. But at the end, I always take five minutes to run through my gratitude and this is the part that's new for me and I, I feel a shift from it. It's kind of, I don't even need to talk about it, but I basically run through everyone on the farm that I live with. So that's about 30 people. And then in my community, you know, the Mateata retail place or my band. And then I run through everyone I work with at Guayaquil and ends up being like 50 to 75 people that it just to like, I picture that, you know, they're, who they are, I picture them and, takes five minutes kind of to get through that visualization and I also then I think where I am on the land and like whether it's the sunshine or if it's the rain or just the elements around me and then I close my my practice with that and it, it shifts my reality in some indescribable way for the day I know I guess it's more like I notice the days that I don't do it
0: right? <laughs> yeah,
2: and I notice the days that I yeah. do I did it today and it's just like it, it brings in a little extra sparkle because I'm just visualizing it and bringing it into my consciousness, straight up. Just like it's in my consciousness for the day and I take it into my heart and then into my chakras and then it's closed and I'm fine with that, that's enough. If I do that, I feel like I'm honoring the people in my life who have brought me so many blessings.
0: Sick, man. Dude, this was so fun. (laughs) You gotta pick up a new foil.
2: I got a new foil and picking up a foil in a half an hour. That's radical. It's pretty, yeah, I've been dreaming about it and it's probably, could be a, a real big game changer in my life. The fact, you know, up where we live, it's just, it's often glassy and there's, you know, two foot waves rolling around from the ferries and I've looked at them for a long time and, this whole new technology and my buddy brought my buddy jeremy brought one so i'm gonna go pick it up now and then we're gonna i'm gonna fly back with it and I'm gonna get tow in off my little aluminum 18 foot huecraft Craft. you tow
0: in and then you're behind the boat i hope so you hope so do you, so yeah i think that you can do it man because there's such a small amount of resistance if that's making real waves there's no doubt that you're gonna be able to do it It's just, it's just going to be a matter of your quads and how long those things can sustain. That part will
2: work. It's more like, I believe it's just literally, you know, towing into these waves and if it'll work, if the physics all work out, they're on the hour all the time. Yeah. And I've, I just can't believe that this might be a reality.
0: It's such a different feeling though, because you're, it's a little bit like, um, dropping into a half pipe. And then going up the other side—that's mm-hmm. the—that's the way that I would describe it. It's less toe and heel movement, mm-hmm. like you're like on a surfboard, and more like you're pushing down and you're gyrating a little bit, and then you move right. up again, then you're gyrating down again. But the—I um, mean—the invention of the foil is really insane. I mean, it's the same; it's using the same physics as taking off in an airplane. If you're looking out the window and you're on a runway going out. The, the foil of the airplane wing is just sucking more air below beneath it right. than on top of it which allows you to get lift which is the same um, same physics of a foil you just need to be going about 2 miles an hour there was I, a, I
2: went online and I saw the, these videos of these guys in New Zealand I think it was foiling these cargo waves and our boats are the same size or bigger and it's actually, um, now I'm actually kind of excited to put on the thick wetsuit too. I don't mind having a little extra protection too. <laughs> totally, yeah. So it kind
0: of goes with the cold water and
2: yeah, it's, yeah. Just
0: make sure you put the foil on right. The, everyone who have gotten injuries, because yeah. you you know, there's a couple times when you'll fall and it'll seem like the things, a battle accident is going to take you off, yeah. but it actually goes in a different direction usually. But s- some of the people who have, I know who have had injuries, they put the foil on upside down on accident and then it flips it over. And I know one dude who has a huge scar on his head now because he did it, did it wrong. I'll take some time to yeah. get it right <laughs> for yeah.
2: sure. I mean, it's, we'll see how it goes. It's pretty exciting that thought of it even being a reality and not let myself get too excited yet.
0: No, it's going to be sick. I, I wrote an article for this magazine that I, I write for, for called Santa Cruz waves on foiling. And, um, th- there was a, an America's cup, um, sailing race Mm -hmm. where people would do um gosh what kind of sailboats or like the real fast uh boats like the cats the cats yeah and and the one year a team put on a foil and it doubled their speed yeah (laughs) racing speed because there's no friction
2: yeah there's no friction i know
0: well hey no friction. No friction. No friction. <laughs> let's, let's end it there. Um, yeah. Epic. That's uh, like allow, isn't it? Yeah. Allow, no friction. Um, wh- wh- is there a place where people can get in touch with you or are you more behind the scenes?
2: No, I'm, people I'm easy to get a hold of. Okay.
0: Where can people get in touch with you?
2: Um, I'm just david at com.
0: david at guayakee.com. Okay. Yeah. And on social media, are you there at all? No. Good for you. <laughs> oh, well done. And uh, any upcoming events or anything that people should should check out that you know of?
2: You know, you can find all that on guaiky.com yeah. on our website. There's there's always things happening. You know, and on Instagram, you know, we have Guayaquil's Instagram, we have our embasebolor Instagram, which is one that's run by students, and then we have our Come to Life Music Instagram which is everything we're doing with our deeper storytelling around the regenerative news. So there's a lot of different filters and channels into the brand.
0: Sick, man, that was so fun. Thank you very much. Thank you, brother. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for listening and thank you so much to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring these podcasts. Thank you to all of you who donate on Patreon, even just five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you can spare really does make a difference. And if you can't, just go out there, Be a good person, enjoy the natural world, uh, and I will leave you with this quote. I just um, watched a documentary called Requiem for an American Dream by, it's a Noam Chomsky documentary. Check it out, it's on YouTube, and there's a quote in there that stuck with me. And here it is. What matters are the countless small deeds of unknown people that lay the basis for the significant events in history. And that is a quote by Howard Zinn. So, countless small deeds, everyone. Get out there and do yours. Enjoy your day. I'll see you later. I bring you Light the Band.